this is by reading what he has and studying what he has to say in his word. And so we read now from Acts 21, verses 1 through 16. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we know that you have fully revealed yourself to us in your son, Jesus Christ, and that everything we need to know about you and your desires for our lives can be found within these pages. While we do not know what the future holds, we trust in you for guidance and wisdom and discernment. Would we hear your voice this morning as your word is preached? And Father, should there be any barriers in our hearts or minds that keep us from hearing you, would your spirit remove them? so that we may be transformed and molded by your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When I was younger, I um, really enjoyed watching game shows, uh, but I was never particularly good at the games of chance. Um, You you know the ones that I'm talking about, where there's uh, like three curtains, and the grand prize is behind one of them, and contestants would need to... Uh, select which curtain, uh, and then live with the consequences and the results of whatever was behind the curtain they chose. Uh, I was never good at it. I felt like I always got those wrong. And then there were some times that I would like try to trick the universe and like pick a curtain, and then at the last second change my mind and pick another curtain, and, and do this like reverse psychology on the game, and it still didn't work. I was still always wrong, and it was the one that I originally chose, and. Yeah, Uh, oftentimes this is how believers think discerning God's will for their life looks like, though. Right, what's behind curtain number one? 
with a future that is veiled and unknown to us, many believers feel as though they must decipher or decode or somehow decrypt a specific path that God has charted for them. And if they somehow miss a turn or, or they go wrong in their direction, they are suddenly outside of the will of God. As if God is telling you that behind one of these three curtains is what I would have for you and what I would want for you, but it's up to you to try and figure out which curtain it is. And this fascination with determining God's will of direction sometimes has a crippling effect on the life of the believer. And if that's where you're standing right now, let me reassure you that Scripture is very clear how we discern God's will. There's many passages that actually speak to it, but I want to draw your attention to just one for now. It's Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. The the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans on this third missionary journey. This is what's on Paul's mind as he's discerning God's will. And what does he say in verses 1 through 2 of Romans 12? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does the passage say? Offer yourself up to God. Turn away from the pattern of the world and be transformed by by God's mercies. I I, I fit the mold of the world and then I met Jesus and now I am being transformed and now I am turning to God and I am offering myself up to, to him and I'm being transformed by his mercies. And in doing that, there is a cause and effect relationship. The cause of turning away from the heart and the desire of the broken world and aligning yourself with the heart and the desire of the perfect God cause there is an effect. Then you are able to discern what the will of God is. What Romans 12 says here is that the more I align my mind and my thinking with God's mind and thinking and the less... I think the way that a sinful world would think. The more that I look at the world through the lens of Scripture, what God has said and revealed about himself, the easier it is to discern his will, what he desires. This is how the Christian life works. One one pastor writes that as the Spirit gradually takes over our life, defeating our old selfish, vain, and foolish manner of life, we begin to actually cherish what God cherishes and we make decisions according to his values and we view life from his eternal perspective. And you you know this to be true even in your own life because the better we know a person, the more acquainted we are with, with his or her desires. There are staff members here at FAC that I am so acquainted with, that I am close enough with, where I know for the most part how they would react in a certain situation. I know what their, what their desire would be when faced with a decision. In the same way, as we walk closely with Jesus, we are actually given the mind of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. We, we, we know him. 
and, and it helps us to know his will. I, I know that some of you may wish that God would audibly speak to you and, and when faced with a decision, but the fact of the matter is he won't. And the reason he won't is because he already has. He's already spoken. He's given us actually something better. He's given us his word and scripture. He's given us his spirit to understand it, to, to, to illuminate these words to us, to reveal himself to us. And those are the means by which he gives us wisdom. And according to Hebrews 13, God equips us with everything good that we may do his will. Those are, those are the means by which God speaks to us, and those are, are the means by which we will know his will for our life. Now, now there's a lot to be said on discerning God's will in one's life. Uh, entire books have been written on the subject. The passage that we read and where we find ourselves in Paul's journey, however, does not focus on how to discern God's will. Paul has already done that, but rather how to respond to it. To this point in Acts, Paul has already made up his mind about where the Spirit is leading him to go. Uh, Paul was so in tune with the Spirit, walking so closely with Christ through the Holy Spirit that he knew God wanted him to go to Jerusalem for the sake of the kingdom to finish out his final uh, missionary journey that we have recorded here in Acts. We've known this for some time. If you were to put years on it, we've known for several years uh, in the story, at least, that Paul is heading to Jerusalem. Um, back in verse 21 of Acts 19, it's written, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. In Acts 22, where we were, uh, 2022, where we were about three weeks ago, he tells the Ephesian elders in, in Miletus, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit. And then he adds, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So this has been on Paul's itinerary for quite some time, and he clearly feels that this is where the Holy Spirit is guiding him. Yet he is also very aware that he is going to experience some kind of affliction when he gets there, some kind of hardship. As he speaks to the Ephesian elders, he doesn't know what he's going to experience other than that it's going to happen. There will be some kind of affliction. But we read this morning, as we read this morning, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the clearer a picture becomes of what he will face when he gets there. And so if, you, if we've been paying attention ever since Acts 19, there's kind of this uncomfortable growing tension in the narrative as Paul draws nearer to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and who is one of Paul's traveling companions at this time, he, he details the departure um, from Miletus where he met with the Ephesian elders where we were a couple of weeks ago. In, in verse 1 is where we were the last time in the book. Paul pulls himself or tears himself away from the elders of Ephesus. Uh, this is a sad departure, right? He, he is literally having to pull himself away. And they sail eastward making a few pit stops along the way. Uh, and then in verse 3, they land in the city of Tyre, and they stay there for a week. And, and during their time there, they, they get together with some believers in the city, and we read in verse 4 that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
right? Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, verse 4, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now that seems a little strange at first glance, right? If Paul has made up his mind and Paul is clearly being led by the Spirit, now all of a sudden you've got these other believers saying through the Spirit he was told not to go to Jerusalem. It appears at first glance that Paul is getting mixed messages from the Spirit. And you're saying, well, he's in good company because that happens to me all the time, right? But Paul feels led by the Spirit to go. These other believers are warning him not to go through the Spirit. So what's happening here? Well, we know in Scripture that the Holy Spirit never contradicts himself. So that that is not what's happening. The Holy Spirit is not sending mixed messages. The Holy Spirit isn't playing games here. It's also very evident that these believers in Tyre heard something. It's not as if they're lying. It's not as if they think they heard from the Spirit. No, they absolutely heard from the Spirit. But you see, this is not a matter of whether they heard from the Holy Spirit or not, but what they heard from the Spirit. And what they hear, we can deduce, is actually the same message that Paul hears. Right? Because once again, Paul told the Ephesian elders, if I go to Jerusalem, the, the Spirit has told me that imprisonment and affliction await me. Every single city I go into, there, there's going to be hardship. These believers entire, entire have also heard through the Holy Spirit that Paul will experience such things. And so from this revelation... They are the ones who conclude that Paul should not go because he would be walking into danger. The the late, great John Stott says that in this verse, we actually need to draw a distinction between prediction and prohibition. These believers are not saying that Paul is prohibited from going according to the Holy Spirit. Rather, they're predicting that if he does go, he's in for a world of hurt according to the Holy Spirit, so he shouldn't go based on what the Holy Spirit has said. See, these guys heard from the Holy Spirit, but they didn't go far enough. Right? They, they heard what the Spirit said about what would happen in Jerusalem, but they stopped short and made their own conclusions about what Paul should do. It's out of great love and care and concern for Paul that they urge him to stay away from Jerusalem. And, and what this shows us is that even our closest friends... Even some of the strongest believers, our loved ones who are well-intentioned, can be fallible and can be wrong about what God desires. In, In discerning God's will, it's wise and appropriate to seek counsel from mature believers. I don't want you to walk out of this room today and never do that. That that is wise counsel, to, to seek out other people's thoughts. But we also have to walk into that knowing that they are also sinners. And they are not perfect. Some of your most respected, well-loved believers in your life will get it wrong sometimes. It's, it's, it's not as if these believers are actively trying to work against God's will. They genuinely have Paul's best interests at heart and are trying to protect him. But Paul knows in this moment that his own interests, his own interests, what's best for Paul in this moment is not what's best for God's kingdom at this time. And so he faithfully marches on. Paul continues his travel plans and he ends up in Caesarea by uh, by verse 8, which is right on the doorstep of of Jerusalem. I believe that I've got a map 
um, to show you where he's at in his journey. You can see kind of the line, and then I want to draw your attention to the bottom right, the southeast portion of that map to show you how close he is to Jerusalem. Caesarea is on the bottom right part of that map of the screen, and you see that Jerusalem is right there to the south. So think about this. At this point, this is really Paul's last chance to change his mind. There's no turning back. After Paul leaves Caesarea, he will cross a threshold, a point of no return. Hence the determination and the urgency from Paul's loved ones here in this city. It's here where the warning has become more vivid and specific in the text than ever before. And the other believers in Caesarea ramp up in their resolve to hold on to Paul, to keep Paul out of Jerusalem. We're reintroduced here to a prophet named Agabus. Now, we've met Agabus before. He actually appeared back in Acts 11, and he, were, he predicted that there would be a great famine in, in Judea. And we're told here in verse 10 that he had actually come down from, from Judea. Judea is a kind of a mountain. Jerusalem's on a mountaintop. Um, and, and so he's coming down from where Jerusalem was located. And so Agabus is fully aware of the political climate in Jerusalem. Agabus takes Paul's belt which isn't what we would think of as, a, as like a leather belt. It, it would have actually been like this long uh, piece of cloth that would have wrapped around Paul's torso, his midsection and his waist uh, several times. And, and the purpose of such belts were actually to hold personal items during travel. Think, think of it like a giant sash. Right? Agabus takes Paul's sash, this belt, and Agabus binds his own feet and he binds his own hands. And from our perspective, we read this, and this feels like a little bit of, of, of an awkward scene to us. What is Agabus doing? Um, he, he's actually using a form of prophetic practice of acting out the prophecy. We actually see this a number of times in the Old Testament. He, he's demonstrating and showing Paul what will happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. Now, once again, Agabus, this guy is a reputable guy. He's a prophet. We've seen his prophecy come to fruition before. He's from the region. He knows, once again, the political climate. He knows what's going on there. And he probably, based on human wisdom alone, predicted what would happen to, to, to Paul based on his own human observation, his own understanding alone. Yet despite that, he declares in verse 11, this is important, thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's clear as day here that Agabus speaks on behalf of God here. There is no question that this is the Spirit speaking at this moment. And so any kind of uncertainty, any kind of vagueness about what the Holy Spirit had been telling Paul and all of the other believers is now out the window. It is as clear as day that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he will be arrested and he will be handed over to the Gentiles for punishment. 
This is no longer just a general warning that has Paul guessing at the kind of persecution he will face. No, this is very specific. Paul knows exactly what he's walking into. At no point could Paul, having gone to Jerusalem and be arrested and say, well, if I knew this was going to happen, then I wouldn't have come. No, he knows. He knows exactly. And this, this prompts all of the believers present, including, interestingly enough, Paul's own traveling companions now to plead with him not to go. You'll notice that Luke actually switches his writing to the first person. He, he says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Luke himself, for the first time, the very people who accompanied Paul on their their journey, is urging him not to go, begging him because of the looming danger at hand. Paul's closest fellow brothers in Christ who have been traveling with him for years are telling him now, don't go. As Paul sits at the foot of Jerusalem, there's nothing but despair to come. The gloomy scene, it reminds me of um, the Lord of the Rings story uh, where Frodo, the little hobbit, is at the foot of Mount Doom where he needs to destroy this evil ring of power. He's on a mission much like Paul. And as Paul turns his gaze towards Jerusalem, Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, gives us a picture of what it might felt have felt like for Paul in regards to Frodo. Uh, Tolkien writes that that the mountain, Mount Doom, the mountain crept up ever nearer until if they lifted their heavy heads, it filled all their sight, looming vast before them, a huge mass of ash and slag and burned stone out of which a sheer-sided cone was raised into the clouds. Before the day-long dust ended and true night came again, they had crawled and stumbled to its very feet. With a gasp, Frodo cast himself on the ground. Sam sat by him. To his surprise, he felt tired but lighter, and his head seemed clear again. No more debates disturbed his mind. He knew all the arguments of despair and would not listen to them. His will was set, and only death would break it. He felt no longer either desire or need of sleep, but rather watchfulness. He knew that all the hazards and perils were now drawing together to a point. The next day would be a day of gloom. The day of final effort or disaster. The last gasp. Paul fixes his eyes toward the dangerous mountaintop of Jerusalem, knowing that the next figurative day in his life would be a day of doom. And with his fellow believers clutching hold of him, he has every reason to halt his plans. Human wisdom gives him every reason to hold back. And so how does Paul respond? Verse 13, first he pretty much tells them, why are you weeping? Stop weeping because it's breaking my heart. We see the the softness, the tenderness of Paul's heart, that that he's just not this stubborn, arrogant man. He is hurting over this. He is in pain over this. Don't make this harder than it has to be. This is hard, and I am sad, and I don't know what I'm walking into. I know a lot of what I'm walking into, but this is going to be hard, so please don't make it harder. Help me out here. Paul is just as heartbroken as they are. 
And then he says something incredibly profound. I am ready. I am ready. I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. To be ready for something, it means that you are equipped and fully prepared to face whatever experience is coming your way, right? As you go on your summer vacations, to be ready for a trip, it means my bags are packed, the car is loaded, seatbelt on, I have everything I need to face what I will experience on my journey. I am ready. And so how remarkable it is for Paul to say, I am ready for death itself. Right? Paul does not approach Jerusalem because he is this perpetual optimist, hoping that the events won't play out uh, that way or as they may seem. Paul does not sit there and say, I'm going to go in and just wish for the best. Paul is not banking on the Holy Spirit being wrong. And, and we know that Paul is not some sort of fatalist as if he doesn't have a choice in the matter because he's actually fled persecution before. He has avoided persecution in the past. Paul says, no, I am going to go because I am compelled by the Spirit to go, but it's okay because if death is the worst thing that they can bring to me, I am ready to die. I am ready to die. Once again, to be ready means that I have all the necessary preparations for what I am going to experience. And so this begs the question, in your own life, have you ever thought about how to prepare for death? Are you ready for your own death? Can you with confidence say, I am ready to die? It's it's a valid question. And not many in our own culture think enough about death, especially their own death. Whenever we come face to face with death, we make as quick work of it as possible when someone passes away. We try to even clean up the process the best that we can so as not to come face to face with our own mortality. But but it's a valid question because everyone who lives eventually dies. And so why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you prepare and ensure that you are ready for the inevitable. Well, you might sit here and say, well, how, how do I get ready? And Paul tells us the answer. How is Paul so ready and eager to face his own death? Because he tells us that he is doing this work for the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin of Paul's readiness. Paul knows that just as Jesus experienced death and was risen from the grave, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise him from the dead if that spirit dwells in him. But Paul knows that to die is gain. But Paul knows that there is nothing in this life, not even life itself, that is more valuable than the treasure that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That that, that if I have put my faith and trust in Jesus to forgive me of my sins that have separated me from God, and as Jesus makes me right before God, then death, although a wicked enemy, is the final enemy. And so how does one prepare for death? How can I say with confidence this morning, I am ready for death like Paul? By turning to Jesus. 
and following him through death's door. And what we find here is that not only having this hope in Christ, not, having this hope in Christ not only prepares us to die well, as the Puritans would call it, but it also prepares us to live well. I think it was Billy Graham who said that the only, only when a man is prepared to die is he also prepared to live. Right? Our, our decisions and our desires and our determinations change in this life when we are ready to die. We see that in this passage, not just with Paul, but with the other believers in Caesarea. Verse 14, look at it. And and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Upon seeing Paul's confidence in the spirit and his confidence in the gospel and his confidence in Jesus, they changed their tune. They, They say, Paul, we may not like it, if I had it my way, it would look different. But let the, Lord, the will of the Lord be done. Let the Lord do as he wishes. See, as we come into a deeper relationship with God through his spirit, as we know him deeper and abandon our old way of thinking, there is this natural wrestling with God that occurs. It's a fight. Romans 12 verses 1 through 2 is a fight, is it not? to to abandon the pattern of the world that we so much cherished and loved and desired and and, and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That is an absolute knock-em-out, drag-em-out fight with God to let go of the world and to grasp on to Him. It's it's a wrestling match is what it is, the Christian life. And the moment that you are able to speak the words, let the will of the Lord be done, is a moment of submission in the fight. It's to say, all right, God, you win. I will stop fighting so hard for what I want. To pray, Lord, your will be done is to acknowledge God's right to rule. It's to say, Lord, I am looking down that road and I see a lot of loss and I don't like that path, but you have called me to the path and I will trust that your ways are better than my ways and that your thoughts are better than my thoughts. Do with me as you wish. Your will be done. Paul and his team submit to the will of God. And by the end of the passage, they actually enter Jerusalem, uh, and they are accompanied by some of the believers in Caesarea who were trying to hold Paul back. Pretty interesting, isn't it, the turn of events? They, they, They go from adamantly clinging to Paul to joining him in Jerusalem. Not sure what's going to happen to them, even though they knew what was going to happen to Paul. In this Christian life, there is going to be loss. But as one pastor has said, on the authority of God's word, the Christian life is gain. And the hardships of this life that God will call us through according to his perfect will are not worth comparing to the reward that is to be revealed to us in heaven. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word and your spirit who illuminates these words, Father. We confess that these words were inspired by you. They were written by your mind. You instructed the earthly writers what to say, what to write. 
And just as the Spirit was active with their pen strokes, he is active in this moment, showing us who you are and what your will would be for our life. And so I pray, Father, as we charge even into the future, that we would be a kingdom-minded people and that our decisions and our desires and our own will would be conformed to what's best for your kingdom and not our own personal interests, Father. We thank you and praise you for Jesus, even as we come to the communion table and remember what he has done on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, for your mindfulness of us. It's in your holy name I pray. Amen.